Hey folks, it's Joe Public. You're listening to The Public Record here on Radio Nope. It's Tuesday night. I say that every week. And that's good, you know, because you might have forgot. You might think it's Monday. And then you're like, oh, Monday. So much week left. Or you might think it's Wednesday and think, yay, I made it past the hump day. Well, it's not as bad as Monday. It's not as good as Wednesday. It's Tuesday. And you're here with me on the public record for my last show uh, where I'm focusing on the year 1980. Um, Yeah, I mean, it sort of fell into this uh, thing. I mean, I like doing the year-focused thing. uh, And I am taking suggestions for another year to focus on for October. I'm going to ruminate over that over the next week. I have some ideas. Um, But 1980 was kind of a spectacular year because, you know, as I program out a show, I've got two hours here to, well, whatever part of two hours I leave behind when I'm not flapping my gums um, is left for me to fill up with music. And 1980 provided a abundant sampling of excellent stuff. Um, I got a suggestion on uh, Facebook for another year and I looked, I like quickly pulled up, okay, year in music and I looked it up and I went, Ugh, yeah, I don't think I could do uh, three or four weeks worth of two hour shows from that year. Not in still have some self-respect. My dog is laying over here on the floor going, because mm, she's old. That's what old dogs do. They go, mm. come to think of it, I do that. Mm. All right, I'm going to get into the music. Uh, this one's been sitting on my 1980 list for a while, and it seemed an appropriate song to start off a show with.
truth from him Gary says he changes his mind More than a woman But she made a bed Even when the chance was slim That's Robert Palmer with Johnny and Mary from the Clues album uh, on the public record doing the 1980 thing. Uh, first time I ever heard that song, um, my brother Mark, my older brother Mark, made me a cassette tape of two albums. Um, side A of the tape was the Robert Palmer Clues LP, and side B was, I think... Um, Ark of a Diver by Steve Winwood. Two albums that came out that year. And initially I was totally into the Ark of a Diver record, um, but it started to irritate me. And so I flipped the tape over and I started listening to Clues. And I've been a devoted Robert Palmer fan ever since. Um, I, I think he was a genius. And I will fight you over that. Do not dispute me. 
um, yeah, big loss. That's one of those, that's like one of those musician losses. It didn't rate as highly as, you know, David Bowie or Prince, but it kind of like socked me in the gut a little bit. Anyway, before that, uh, Elvis Costello and the Attractions with the Riot Act, and I'm sitting there and I'm listening to Bruce Thomas play the bass on there. And I'm a bass player. Uh, I'm also a guitar player, but mostly I play the bass. And there's just this thing about this certain era of of um, English music and the presence, the forward mixing of the bass guitar that I I grew up loving. And so to me, like when I make music on my own now, that's what I want to hear. And I think actually one of the reasons I dislike um, music from the late 80s through like early 90s so much is because the trend went the opposite direction. The trend went to just like burying the bass guitar. And I hate that. I hate I hate the way it sounds. Um, there's... There's like one band who's allowed to bury the bass guitar. That's ACDC. Anybody else does it, it, it pisses me off. Um, and it, uh, it, it, oh man, it just, it, it bothered me so much. I like grew to hate music. And I think one of the reasons why when Nirvana hit in like late 91, early 92, I think one of the reasons why they captivated me so much was they had actually gone back to that, bass forward mix and I loved it like it connected with me it reminded me of stuff I'd loved as a kid and and so I love their music and their music was great and yeah but it just like sonically it 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 hooked me and so Bruce Thomas a bass player in the attractions who famously Elvis Costello cannot stand um it's the reason why there's no Elvis Costello in the attractions anymore because the two of them can't be in the same room together and um it's a shame because he he he's a fantastic bass player and the way that he approached the arrangements of the bass parts to the songs that uh elvis costello wrote i think was just flawless and um that song riot act is from the get happy record which and this is the like weird kid brain thing i bought it because when i picked up the record jacket in the store there were so many songs on there and and i later remember reading like in an interview where he had said he wanted to try to get as many songs as possible onto a vinyl lp that that was his objective and he'd actually edited down his compositions to make sure he could fit as much as he possibly could onto one album uh not make it a double album he didn't want to make a double album he kind of he, he said he felt like double albums were indulgent um, asking too much of the listener, asking too much of the record buyer, that kind of thing. And so he just like packed tunes onto that record. And I bought it because I was like, whoa, lots of songs. This is the one I want. And it's sort of beloved of me. And that song, I get, I get like, you know, hairs on the back of my neck standing up kind of stuff happens when I listen to that one. I, I, I go through these eras where I hate, I can't stand to listen to Elvis Costello and the attractions or, or Elvis Costello solo stuff. Um, like, I just feel like I'm done with it. It's too much. It's, it's too, it's too, um, self-consciously artful. That sounds like a thing a music critic would say, 
So yeah. And so it bugs me. And, and then I will ignore him for like a year or two years or three years. And then I'll play a song and go, Oh wow. I really love everything he does. And then I'll go on a binge. I think I'm ready for a, an EC binge. Before that, Squeeze with another nail in my heart. Um, I can remember when everybody said Squeeze was the new Beatles. Like, Different and Tilbrook, their songwriting duo, were the new John Lennon and Paul McCartney. I never bought that. I always thought, whoa, that's... Wow, what a way to sentence a band to just doom. I mean, think about it. 1980, you aren't even... You were eight years away from the the official breakup of the Beatles. Like, think about that for a minute. You're only eight years away from the, like, the official announcement, we're broken up, we're done, in 1980. And some dumbass music critic in Rolling Stone is talking about uh, the new Lennon-McCartney? No. Because Beatles fans are at that point are like, oh, yeah, they're getting back together it's just a matter of time. They'll get over everything. They'll be making a new album any day now. Yeah, more to follow on that as we go through 1980. Uh, but yeah, I mean, can you imagine the pressure you, that, that must have put on those two guys? It must have been flattering and also horrible. <laughs> and then the jam with That's Entertainment. Um I think, honestly, that song and Going Underground were the first jam songs I ever heard, and I loved them both, and, and that album, Sound Effects, that, that both songs are on, uh, is one of my all-time favorites. So, 1980s, starting off as a banner here, folks. I'm Joe Public. You're listening to The Public Record. Thank you for tuning in uh, or listening on your favorite podcasting platform. I do appreciate it. Um, here's another song that makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up on the public record. I'm not the only
did not grok talking heads um initially as a kid i didn't get them right like i was aware of them and i didn't really get them until like 1983 and just own that fact i'm aware kind of like a few songs but i didn't really get them um and the like dawning realization um as i became a fan of the fact that they'd actually been at it since 1976 blew my mind because there was there was so much evolution from one album to the next for the band it just seemed incredible to me um, and it still kind of does. I mean, if you if you go back and you listen to Talking Heads '77, and you listen to, you know, uh, "Remain in Light," which that song I just played, "Once in a Lifetime," came from. I mean, 
there's not a lot in common between those two bands and and it's it's crazy i mean there's enough in common that you realize yeah it's the same band but it's it's just wild it's wild the evolution of the music and i remember seeing an interview with uh david byrne um it was probably like 81 or 82 in which he said he was asked you know what bands he liked like what music he liked who was he inspired by that were his contemporaries and he said nobody and yeah that sounds really arrogant until you like listen to the rest of it he just said he didn't like the way that rock music was presented was alienating to him it it pushed him away and he was only drawn he was only interested in music that drew him in and made him want to be a participant in the in the event of that music. And so then the interviewer had said, well, like, okay, is there music being made right now that you do really like? And he said, yeah, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And I remember that actually inspired me to buy a ticket. I couldn't find anybody who wanted to go with me. I bought a ticket to go see Earth, Wind, and Fire. And you know, coincidentally happened to be coming around and touring. And I went by myself and I, you know, I'm a little white kid and I was intimidated because I was brought up in a culture that was supposed to be like intimidated by that stuff. And, um, that concert might have been the one I had the most fun at up to that point in my life. Um, actually probably, yeah, absolutely. I had the most fun. Because I got the whole fact that it was like a big party and everybody's there and just dancing and having a great time. And and also, oh my lord, the musicianship that happened on that stage. And I'd seen rock concerts. I'd been to a bunch of rock concerts. Most of them had disappointed me. Um, you know, there were a handful that I'd seen up to that point where I was really blown away. Um, Queen blew me away. Devo blew me away. Um, Black Sabbath with Ronnie James Dio, like freaking floored me. Um, but mostly the concerts I'd seen disappointed me. Um, and I didn't get what was going on at all. I didn't get why I was as disappointed as, as I was, um, until like much later when I became, you know, I became a performer, um, and understood, Oh, okay. I saw a lot of people phoning it in for a paycheck or, you know, for the groupies or whatever. And, um, Earth, Wind and Fire was not doing that. And so I immediately got what David Byrne was talking about. And I was, and, and I've always held that in my mind of like, that's kind of the standard. You like, do you push me away or do you draw me in? And, um, I think Byrne, there's a lot of speculation that David Byrne might be on the spectrum. Um, but I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that's a cultivated persona or, for, or if he actually really does have a really hard time um, interacting with other humans. Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm, and, and I don't want to judge him, right? I don't want to do that. He's David Byrne and, you know, I think his work, his body of work over his career just speaks to the fact that you should just let him be and let him be the way he's going to be because it's amazing. Um, 
but yeah, it's like, so I, I remember retroactively going, whoa, talking heads. So the video for that song that I played once in a lifetime, it's one of the most iconic music videos ever. And it happened in an era in which there's no MTV. He has no idea who he's making this for. Where is it going to be played? Where is that video going to be shown? He's just making art. And, and to me, that's kind of amazing and cool on a gajillion levels. Enough about Talking Heads. Before that, Gary Newman with what might actually be the most iconic song of 1980 with Cars. And he didn't just... He released two albums in 1980. Like uh, Pleasure Principle that Cars came from um, comes out early in the year and then later in the year, Telecon comes out. Um, which didn't like spawn hits, but it's a great album. Oh my Lord, is it a great album? Um, and uh, yeah. And cars, like arguably cars changed everything about popular music. Um, it, it was the song that made everybody go, oh yeah, synthesizers sound cool. As opposed to the dumb debate, like it really is a dumb and ignorant debate about are synthesizers cool? Yeah, they're cool. You liked them when the Beatles used them on Abbey Road, you dill holes. <sighs> but it's that thing I've talked about in previous weeks that that 1980 is a is a year in which music is sitting on on the fence. And it's sitting on the fence, and on one side of the fence is the 70s, on the other side is the 80s. And in the 70s, synthesizers were uh, identified primarily with progressive rock bands. And by 1980, prog rock is out. It's it's a bad word. Progressive rock, that's a, that's a bad word. In the music business, in popular culture, it's bad. Because people associate it with... Um, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer playing one song for 20 minutes. And while they loved that in 1977 or 78, by 1980, they hate it. It's sort of like, it's almost like parallel to the reaction to disco. Like by 1980, nobody likes disco anymore. Or, or at least nobody admits to liking disco, even though there's still great disco music being made. Um, they just They just don't like it. And, and it's because it's not acceptable, socially unacceptable to be a fan of that genre of music. And that's what happened with progressive rock. Um, and so the, the whole, I, I mean, down to Queen Records all the way up until 1980 have a, have a thing in the liner notes specifically stating no synthesizers were used in the production of these records. And that's because Brian May, as a guitar player, was a very innovative guitar player, used a lot of um, effects, he used a lot of really innovative recording techniques, and so you could begin to think, oh, okay, there's that's a synthesizer. No, it's a guitar, and he wanted he wanted the credit for making that noise. Um, you know, as as a as an audio guy, I'm like, yeah, okay, it's still an electronic noise. It really isn't any different from a synthesizer, bud. Um, but that was like a thing on rock records. No, we didn't use any synthesizers, which is just weird. To me, it's weird. Anyway, before that, lesser known, you know, didn't have a hit in the U.S., The Cure with a Forest. That's a great song. 
Um, that song comes off an album called 17 Seconds. And if you're not aware of it, you want to check it out. Um, if you're even a remotely a fan of The Cure, it's, it's maybe their best record they ever made. Um, arguably, it's their best record. And that song, I think definitively the best song it's it's to me it's so iconic um uh as a cure song and and just emblematic of everything that makes their style you know like the ramones have a style they have a very distinctive style acdc has a very distinctive style motorhead has a very distinctive style um the cure is another one of those bands that has a very very distinctive style and and it's one no one else can touch you 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 write a song that sounds like that. You compose something and record something that sounds like that. People are going to go, oh, you're copying The Cure. Um, so, you know, that's an achievement in and of itself. And I think that particular song is the most iconic Cure-esque song ever. And before that, uh, yeah, Hairs on the Back of My Neck for Driven to Tears by the Police from Zenyatta Mandata. And I, and I was reading reading an article that made me so angry earlier um well late last week it was like um ultimate classic rock does these like uh rankings of a band's record and it's all like old old music and and i i i take a look because i it's sort of like sometimes it's a a car crash i can't look away and um this was clearly the case because they ranked police albums worst to best and the worst record was in Yada Mandata. They're high. <laughs> They're just high. Um, I, I, I mean, honestly, it's tough to me with the police. Uh, they only made five albums. You kind of just go, again, like the Talking Heads, the evolution of the band through a progression of five records made in a fairly short period of time is just mind-blowing. Um, yeah. Great, great music. I'm Joe Public. You're listening to The Public Record on Radio Nope. It is Tuesday night. Um, And wow, I did two sets of music and I'm almost at the end of an hour because I talked so much. (sighs) So I've been puzzling over this ever since I started this 1980 stuff because um, 1980 is a year that's super meaningful to me and it's super meaningful to a lot of like you know what folks would lump in as classic rock fans um in february of 1980 bon scott the lead vocalist original lead vocalist well most well-known original lead vocalist of acdc died uh circumstances of his death are to this day not utterly completely understood um the official report was he died of alcohol acute alcohol poisoning there's a whole story that he like was out partying with um friends fellow musicians and he went and scored some heroin he overdosed and the overdose caused him to vomit and he aspirated his vomit and choked on it it doesn't actually matter um he was the lead vocalist of a band that was on the precipice of a ginormous potential success. They had uh, recorded the Highway to Hell album uh, with producer Mutt Lang. They were ready to start composing songs to get ready to do the follow-up record and do a tour. 
and um, and he died. And a lot, and for a lot of people, you know, a lot of people felt <coughs> I need a cough button. A lot of people felt like that's the end. You can't have ACDC without Bon Scott. And they recruited a guy named Brian Johnson. Um, Brian was the former singer of a British glam band, actually a Northern English glam band called Jordy. Um, and if you look up Jordy songs, it will, and you don't know them, and you're a you're a fan of ACDC, it will break your brain. Um, apparently, Malcolm Young one of the two brothers that were the leaders of, and he was the actual like boss of the band. Malcolm Young had always wanted ACDC to be a glam band. He'd always wanted that. And, and, and he was a huge fan of the British glam bands from the early seventies. And he was a big fan of Geordie. And so on his short list of guys he wanted to audition to replace Bon Scott was Brian Johnson. So they, they called Brian Johnson. Story goes, he did not believe that he was talking to somebody from ACDC. Like it was their manager. He thought they were somebody from some friend was pranking him. At this point, he's retired from music. Like he's driving a cab and um, he gets this call. Hey, come to London and audition. And and he goes and he auditions and they they tell him, you're in, you're the guy. And then they fly to Nassau in the Bahamas to Compass Point Studios with Mutt Lang. And they make Back in Black, which came out towards the end of 1980. I can remember as a kid, I, I'm this big of an ACDC fan. I had no idea what it was going to sound like. I had not heard it. As soon as I knew I could buy it, I went to the store and I bought the record. It has been my favorite rock record since that first day I heard it. Um, and there's all kinds of BS, like people talking about, oh, Bond wrote the lyrics. No, Bond did not write the lyrics. He was involved in uh, the songwriting process for two songs, um, Have a Drink on Me and Let Me Put My Love Into You. And he did not sing at those writing sessions. He played the drums. He was a drummer. And often when Malcolm and Angus and Bond got together to start working on songs, that's how they did it. Um, Cliff Williams and Phil Rudd, the the bass player and drummer in ACDC, they have the best gig in the world. They don't have to do anything until it's actually time to record. All this shit's done for them. Um, and you know, Bond would play the drums. They would come up with the riffs. He would give ideas about it. So he apparently worked on, he, he got together, rehearsed and worked on songwriting for those two songs. The day that he went out to party with his buddies and consumed something that killed him. Um, and so, yeah, everybody who goes, oh, yeah, Bond wrote the lyrics. I want to put hot needles into your face. Just stop. Give the man credit. Give Brian Johnson credit. The only ACDC album on which Brian Johnson has songwriting credits is Back in Black. If you think 
the reason why subsequent records got more goofy or or less high quality don't blame it on brian blame it on malcolm who became a a a, a monomaniac i mean bond had always been an, a balance to him in the dynamic of the band and with him gone malcolm is just in charge he's running the show and and malcolm had problems and so you know bad acdc records like fly on the wall are attributable to the fact that malcolm was a mess when that record was written and and recorded um you know when they were good it was because malcolm was you know not a train wreck um but and and then famously like bruce fairburn record producer at one point like pulled malcolm aside they're working on an album um and he pulls malcolm aside and he said you realize you're writing all of the songs outside of your singers your lead vocalists range The key that you're writing all these songs in is outside of his range. There's no way they're going to sound good. And and Fairburn said, I I was convinced I was going to be fired when I said that, but there was no way I could actually do the job in good conscience and not speak up, not put my hand up and say, hey, Malcolm, you know what? You know why your records have sounded kind of recently? Um you're writing in a key that your singer can't sing in. And, and, and to his surprise, Malcolm went, Oh, and he just transposed the songs into a different key. And, and, and the result was, um, the stiff upper lip record, which is actually a really good record. Um, as a late era ACDC album. Anyway, I'm off track. My point was, uh, I struggled with this. I was like, you know, as I was like, okay, I'm doing 1980 as my thing for this month. When, what am I, am I going to play like one song? What am I going to do? Uh, no, I'm not. Because, um, you know, you, you gotta, <laughs> respect must be paid, I guess is, is the best way that I can, say it and I can't do it justice with one song so here we go Thank you. 
Radio Nope.
moment of reverence for greatness right there. I'm not kidding. Okay. First off, I've spent a large portion of my life defending Phil Rudd as one of the greatest drummers in rock. People say, oh, he's a simple, he's a simple drummer. Everything he does is simple. I've actually challenged really skilled drummers to play that song I just played, Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution, and play it right. And they can't do it. There's a leaning behind the beat thing that he does. It's particularly pronounced on that song, but there's a leaning behind the beat thing that he does that actually requires a level of skill that most drummers just don't have. And I will absolutely entertain no critic criticisms, no critiques of Phil Rudd as a drummer. I think he plays what is absolutely right for the song in every ACDC song that he's played on. Um, if you want to blame some of their records, um, like, uh, you know, from the mid-80s, if you want to say they're bad for one reason, I blame the fact that he got kicked out of the band. And his replacement, Simon Phillips, is a good drummer. He's not Phil Rudd. Um, and and that feel is missing. So that's that's part of, that's part of what's wrong with those records. Also, bands just have a they have an expiration date. Um, it's funny. I, I played the police earlier. Sting said at one point he thought no band should ever make more than five albums. Um, and I think that was self-serving. He, he said that in an interview, like right before the fifth police album was supposed to come out. And I think he was already like had one foot out the door. He had a vision for his life post police. Um, and, and he was done. He was ready to move on. And I, and I think that's kind of what was going on there, but I also think he was right. Um, I think one of the things that allows a band to keep being creatively inspired is actually if, if they change members, um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't in the case of ACDC, it worked for a little while and then kind of didn't, um, because they really needed to lean on that core, um, and Phil Rudd was part of it and not having him was, was detrimental to the quality of, of the records. Yeah. I unreservedly love Back in Black. And just, just to give you a perspective on um, what, what does the pl what's the place in music history for that record? Well, it's the second biggest selling album in the history of recorded music. I'm not talking rock and roll. I'm not like picking a specific genre. It is the second largest selling album in the history of recorded music. Over 50 million copies sold. And, and while popularity does not equal quality, um, I think that when you reach a level of popularity like that, um, it's tough. 
I'm, I'm going to have a hard time with anybody who tries to argue, oh yeah, that's a terrible record to me. I'm like, you know, you're in the vast majority, uh, I'm sorry, vast minority of humans who believe that. Vast minority. I'm not saying it has to be your favorite record. It's my favorite record. You don't have to, you don't have to love it as much as I do. Just give props. Um, so the songs I played, I played Held Bells, Have a Drink on Me, Shoot the Thrill, um, and Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution, which I wrote in my notes as Have a Drink on Me again, which is weird. I wonder what was going on with my brain there. Um, I'm going to fix that right now. It's live typing! <laughs> Can you hear that? That's because I have a condenser mic. <laughs> you have no idea what that means. You don't care. You couldn't possibly care. So among the other incredible factoids about Back in Black, Bon Scott died in February of 1980. February uh, 19th, I believe it was. Back in Black was recorded at Compass Point in Nassau in the Bahamas between April and May of that year. So, okay, these guys are in a band with Bon Scott for a really long time. He's their, he's their bud. This is a record that represents recovery and grief for the remaining members of the band that knew him. And imagine Brian Johnson, he's in that situation. One, like a few weeks prior to leaving for Nassau, he's a cab driver in the north of England. Um, he'd had a little bit of a music career, had a couple of minor hits in the UK, and now he's driving a cab. And then he's suddenly in the Bahamas, Dude had never actually been away from Europe before. He's in the Bahamas in a studio, um, famous studio at that point. Um, and he's tasked with writing lyrics for an album that's going to be a tribute to the guy he replaced and also can't fail. It can't fail. It's To me, that's just... I think about the pressure he was under... And imagine his relief when the basically the entire world says, oh yeah, this is awesome, and they buy it. And ACDC, which had been sort of like a, you know, play in a minor arena type band, goes to a stadium band in the course of a year after that. That's, that's, a, that's amazing. Guy's had a great life. He's been lucky and also good. But, you know, it's the weird thing. <clears throat> It all comes down to the fact that his obscure band that had a couple minor hits was one that the leader of ACDC was pretty fond of. And so when he said to the manager, eh, get me, get me that guy. Um, yeah, that's weird turns of history. It's one of those like, you know, what if it could easily have gone any of a dozen different ways. All right, I'm going to get off the train there. I'm going to go back into more music. Um, 
Another band, like I mentioned Talking Heads and like not actually being aware of them, like actively aware of them uh, in 1980 and I got aware later. This is another band like that.
Betsy L.O. with All Over the World from the Xanadu soundtrack. Oh, my. Talk about, like, movies that ruin music careers. <laughs> You've got two films um, come out within a couple of years of each other. You you have um, uh, Xanadu and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The Sgt. Pepper movie arguably was the nail in the coffin for the Bee Gees. It was absolutely the end of Peter Frampton's career. Like, it did him in. Just, like, the fact that he was in the building <laughs> while that was being made. Just, he went from being, like, this rock god with one of the best-selling albums ever to somebody who could not give his records away. He was just done. And that's a shame, because Peter Frampton's actually kept making good music like it didn't stop he suddenly didn't become crap because he was in that movie it's just that the world collectively went no sorry thank you goodbye kind of the same thing happened with yellow yellow was huge huge in the late 70s and two things conspired to ruin things for them one uh they were sort of like painted with the progressive rock brush um, because of all of the uh, non-traditional instrumentation, you know, the string section and everything, live string section that they had, um, and and the really polished production. And so they were a favorite of, um, you know, punk rock fans to pick on as being a sign of the, you know, pop music isn't relevant. It doesn't have anything to do with my life. Um and and so they got picked on on that, but also they were in a movie that was basically about roller disco with Olivia, Olivia Newton-John past her sell-by date, and that kind of put them in the ash can. They made one more record that sort of dug them out for a little bit, the Time album, which I love. I love that album. They dumped the string section, went for a more... Um, uh, like new wavy kind of uh, approach instead of having strings actually having like synthesized strings. I love that record. I think it's a, a it's an unappreciated classic. Um, but the, the universe kind of went meh. And, you know, Jeff Lynn has been lurking around in the shadows ever since, uh, involving himself with Tom Petty, with George Harrison, Traveling Wilburys, um, all kinds of people and um, getting no love for it. I I played that song where I did because it immediately follows um, "I'm Losing You" by John Lennon from the Double Fantasy record, and and I can't do I can't talk about 1980. I can't play music from 1980 without talking about what happened on December 10th, 1980, which is when John Lennon was murdered in front of his apartment building in New York City. Um, I, it was a Monday night. Um, I was watching Monday Night Football. I had a good friend. Um, it was a girl that I was really good friends with. I was in like middle school. And, you know, she was kind of my best friend at that point. And so we talked on the phone all the time. My parents were, you know, flittering around doing whatever they were doing. Um, 
and I'm watching Monday Night Football and I'm talking to my friend on the phone. And Howard Cosell breaks in to announce that John Lennon had been shot and then not that long after that he was dead. And I remember not wanting to get off the phone, like ever. Just it being a horrifying thing to hear about. I, I don't know. I mean, if you're a kid of the 70s, there was a lot of mayhem. I, I think in some ways, people of my generation look at the things that have happened in the last few years and we kind of go, eh, it was worse in the 70s. We made it. That may be a terrible position to take, but it's true. It was worse back then. I mean, you know, uh, assassination of the week was almost like it, what it felt like bombings, um, kidnappings, all kinds of things. It, it, it was a, it was a, in a lot of ways, a very scary time to be alive. Um, and, and John Lennon being murdered made no sense at all. It was like, why? He's just a singer. Why? And he just put out this amazing record. Um, like of of his solo records, there's the Imagine album and there's Double Fantasy. Everything else is just kind of yeah, it's all right. Imagine's great. Double Fantasy is also great. Um, and I played ELO after that because there was a music critic before John Lennon was killed. There's a music critic, and I don't remember which one, who said his prediction was that. Uh, the Beatles would get back together, they would record an album, and Jeff Lynne from ELO would produce it. And the creepy thing about that is uh, the surviving Beatles took a demo recording that John had made, and they finished it, and the producer on that was Jeff Lynne. Yeah, creepy. Um... But also appropriate. I mean, it's like to, in some in some way, ELO is just like an extended tribute to the Beatles, circa like Sgt. Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour, Abbey Road. Like that's it's almost as if all ELO records are just somebody attempting to find that like catch that fire in a bottle again. They think like we're gonna pull the parts together that composed this and, and it's just, the manager is going to happen. And I think in some, in some cases it did, um, out of the blue record for ELO, I think is brilliant beginning to end. Um, so there's that. Um, before that, uh, before John Lennon, Boz Skaggs with Breakdown Den Ahead and Steely Dan with Hey 19, um, slick 1980s yacht rock, you know, <laughs> That's what can I say? Um, I'm a sucker for the yacht rock. Sometime, as my friend Matt says, yacht. Silly Dan are yacht rock admirals. I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and file that away in my rapidly decrepitizing brain, um, for future use. I'm Joe Public. You're listening to the Public Record. I got, I've only got like nine minutes left before I'm done here, and I've talked a ton. Um, so I felt like this was apropos. Um, Cheap Trick re- released this 
EP in 1980 called Found All the Parts that was a collection of like leftovers from various recording sessions. Um, it's four songs. Uh, it came neatly packaged with a 45 that on both sides had the single, which was the, um, the title track to uh, a film that's actually pretty good. It's worth finding if you can find it called um, Everything Works If You Let It was the, the song. And that film is called Rody. If you can find Rody, it starred Meatloaf, of all people, in the lead role as a Rody in a rock band. Um, Alice Cooper's in the movie. And yeah, and Cheap Trick had a song in there. And um, yeah, Everything Works If You Let It was the song. But I'm not playing that. I'm playing this because I love it. Uh, if I can not like goof up my controls, let's play it. Crowd noise. It's a live track. There you go.
McCartney and Wings actually um, doing live in Glasgow doing coming up and I'd actually originally like programmed into my list the studio version of that song but the studio version of that song is weird the McCartney 2 record is interesting in kind of the same way um, Neil Young's trans album is interesting Um, like oh wow that's cool that's weird but listen to it on purpose? Mm, probably not. Um, <laughs> and I'm doing a thing I don't usually do. I'm I'm talking out the show. I usually play music to go out, and timing-wise, it just made more sense to talk it out. Thank you for hanging in there with me. If you've been listening um, over the past three weeks to all this 1980 stuff, um, thanks. It's it's fun. This is fun. Uh, I'm searching. I'm actively searching for another year. Look up the public record um, on Radio Nope on Facebook, and then, and shoot me a comment if you have an idea of a year to pick. Um, keep in mind, it's got to be a year that doesn't suck. Uh, no 1985s out there, pals. No, it's not happening. You throw me 1990. I'm no. You're gonna talk to the hand. Um, but yeah, if you if if it's a year that you feel like strongly could sustain, uh, what potentially is eight hours 
of um, radio, yeah, let me know. Let me know what you think. I'll probably make up my own mind, but I, you know, I want your input. So there you go. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I'm gonna like play a station ID thing and then I'm out. Thank you. Bye. Hey everybody, this is the Prince of Rock and Roll himself, Satan. I'm a busy guy these days, but I still listen to Radio Nope every chance I get. RadioNope.com makes it so easy to listen to crystal clear rock and roll music and talk shows wherever I'm at. Whether I'm out riding my bike to a cool new food truck, or just chilling at home with my demons, I press the play button on RadioNope.com and out comes the best music and talk on the internet. My name is Satan, and I listen to Radio Nope.